welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week it's time to consider our well-being. Just breathe, relax, and enjoy the mountain air. Our gothic globetrotting takes us to the Swiss Alps via Devon, in conversation with author Sarah Pierce, whose debut novel, The Sanatorium, is garnering all kinds of early release buzz. It's a murder mystery set in a luxurious Swiss spa resort, a hotel for the rich and well-connected, set high in the Alps with a wonderful view and a terrible history. And though Sarah may not consider herself a horror buff, so to speak, the weekend her protagonist is forced to spend in the hotel would make for quite the trip advisor review. The sanatorium blends genres all over the place. It's a mystery that edges towards the horrific, a detective story that delves into the psychology of its characters, and a family drama with a significant body count. Sarah and I talk about that, about the way that debut novels demand an easy marketing pigeonhole and how often that can be difficult because the best novels, in my opinion, find their home in those uneasy spaces between categories. We also talk about the grandeur of the Swiss Alps and how they can inspire terror, the history of sanatoriums and the horror of treatment and she tells me what it's like to have your first book compared to Stephen King and Agatha Christie. I I do get a bit confused when discussing release dates in this episode. Just to clarify, The Sanatorium was published on February 2nd in the US in all formats. For UK listeners, the audio or digital format is already available, and the hardback will be released on February 18th by Bantam Press. So with that bit of admin done... Grab your skis and your saddle pets. We're off for a break amongst the snow and ice. Enjoy yourself, but watch out for avalanches and the occasional killer in a horrible mask. Let's talk scared. Hi, Sarah, and thanks for talking scared with me. How are you in these end times? Yeah, good, thank you. It's a little bit strange times at the moment, but um, yeah, I think I found a new equilibrium, really. (laughs) And I have to say, as the life of an author, I think during the pandemic, I was saying to someone the other day, life hasn't changed so much for me. I think we live somewhere that's quite rural and remote, so we don't tend to bump into lots of people anyway. And I've been immersed in sort of writing uh, the draft of book two. So life has been very much hunkered down for me, so it hasn't changed too much, really. (laughs) It's quite the same for a podcast producer, basically. It's all I do is sit in my room and play around on Audacity, yeah. Uh, where are you speaking to us from? Uh, I'm speaking to you from Torquay. I don't know if you know the far southwest in Devon. Well, I do, but my international listeners may not. Torquay, yeah, it's the bit that sticks out with it, gets lots of sunshine. Yeah, not not as far as Cornwall, but yeah, it definitely sticks out. It's a really pretty little bay. Um, and so, yeah, I'm a kind of on the end of one side of the bay in Torquay. A bit grey today, but generally pretty. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, I live in the north of England and we've got serious snow up here that happened overnight. Oh, wow. So you're covered now, are you? Yeah, completely covered. I'm looking at my window and you can't see a thing. It's just a white world. But that is actually quite apt considering the novel we're here to talk about. Look at that segue. It's like I do this for a living. I like that. (laughs) So you're here to talk about The Sanatorium, which is your debut thriller set in the Swiss Alps. As we'll get into in this episode, the Swiss Alps are quite close to my heart, as well as yours. Uh, We'll no doubt discuss that. But before we start, what can you tell us that we need to know about this book? 
Yeah, so the sanatorium has been described, I'd say the book's been described in a few ways as a chiller thriller um, and a very much a gothic thriller. Um, it's set in an old abandoned sanatorium very high in the Swiss Alps and it's a remote location um, for obvious reasons to do with sanatorium, which I guess we might get into later. Um, but it gets even more remote when it's isolated by a huge snowstorm. And the novel follows a British detective called Ellen Warner who travels out to the hotel to celebrate her estranged brother's engagement. But things take a kind of really dark and eerie turn when his fiance Law, actually disappears. Uh, so that's the crux of the novel. And Ellen basically is called in to investigate. Whether that's of her own volition, you can decide through the novel. But she's essentially the only detective there as the Swiss police can't actually get to the hotel. Yeah. And it's interesting that you mentioned, you know, chiller thriller, gothic thriller, because I think it is all those things. But I think most people will come to this novel assuming it's a locked room murder mystery, which it also is. But I'm glad that you've kicked off by allowing that it's more than that. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I, I've heard it described in so many different ways. And I think there are lots of aspects. And I know we were speaking earlier, Neil, about the sort of horror side of things. And I think, yeah, it, it tips into kind of what you'd say as traditional genres, uh, ver varying ones. I wouldn't, I, I think the murder mystery aspect is definitely there. But I think I, whether consciously or subconsciously, definitely have included aspects of the gothic side of things. So I think the gothic thriller is definitely a good way to describe it. But like you say, the murder mystery aspect is definitely there too. And we will get into all of that. I mean, genre overlap is a big theme of this conversation. Yeah. Before that, I've got to ask you, it's quite rare that I get to speak to an author on the day of publication, because obviously that's the centre of the whirlwind. So I'm really happy you're speaking to us today of all days. As I said before, I feel like I'm in the furnace with you. So today, this book is released February 2nd in the US and North America, and it's due yeah. to come out in physical form in the UK on the 18th of Feb. But you can get it in ebook form or audiobook from the 4th. That's right, yeah. This book is riding high on a lot of buzzy reading lists, and there's a lot of hype and excitement attached to it. How are you feeling now that publication has finally arrived? Yeah, absolutely thrilled. It's one of those moments you're kind of very much building up to. And I have to say, for me, it's really lift up to expectations. Um, I had a lovely few surprises from the family this morning. And I think just for the whole team that I've been working with in a sort of professional aspect, it just feels the culmination of everything I've been working really hard on. So I've heard some people saying it was, you know, the thrills in the journey. But for me, having that moment has just been amazing. And to see the book in physical form, and knowing it's kind of going out to readers, I think for me, that was the biggest aspect really in becoming a writer. It was less the kind of idea of the big launches per se. It was more the idea that that book is reaching readers finally after the sort of many months. And it is a, a long process, a process I didn't realise was quite so long. So 18 months from sort of getting the deal to actually being published. So, yeah, it feels a massive, massive moment. <laughs> yeah, I'm really pleased for you. Obviously, the publication process is a long, drawn out thing. But it's rare that I get to speak to debut novelists on this show. Oh, OK. What I'm interested in is, like, forget publishing for a moment. How long was the creation process? How long has this story been percolating in your head? It's interesting, actually. So I've had ideas. I actually started off writing short stories. Um, and, yeah, the idea for writing a longer work, I'd work, started working... Um, on another novel, um, which didn't quite work out. And then I had, I basically had read an article, the whole of the idea from the sanatorium came when I was on holiday in Crans Montana, which is a resort we holiday in, in Switzerland, in the Swiss Alps a lot. And I read an article 
about the legacy of sanatoria in kind of Swiss resorts in general, really. Um, and yeah, that, that spark of the idea, as soon as I read the article, the sort of seed of the idea started sort of brewing. I was like, mm, I could see myself writing about that. And I'd actually lived in Switzerland for several years in my 20s. Through living in the mountains, you get to see that real extremes of weather. And I thought this would be an amazing place, setting-wise, to set a novel, but I never quite had the idea. So when I'd read that article, I thought, yeah, this has got the sort of seeds of something. And the more I researched, there was a wealth of research out there. And I liaised with a photo historian um, who gave some wonderful photographs had shared online in in another great book. Um, And yeah, from there, I started writing more or less kind of two or three months after that. And the novel was completed in around 18 months. So relatively quick process, really, from that sort of initial seed of an idea. So this is your first actual completed novel then? Uh, second, actually, I'd started working on one. I'd got that finished with my agent, um, but that one didn't work out. So this is my sort of second novel, really actually only the second novel I've completed. I started writing short stories and I'd written a few before I had my family, but it's only really when my daughter was born, I had the time to kind of devote to my writing. It sounds strange because obviously you've got a, a small baby, but I had nap times and I'd spare time and I suppose I wasn't working. So I wasn't using my brain in that kind of academic intellectual way so it became very much an outlet while I was looking after my daughter so I'd started writing short fiction hadn't really thought about writing a novel but yeah after having a bit of success with the short fiction I started writing what would become my first novel Um, that didn't quite work out so the sanatorium's my second. It was quite the accomplishment for a second novel I mean I'm I'm currently trying to shovel my way through a first draft of my first novel, and it's it's basically breaking my heart and brain on a daily basis. So oh. to to have this level of of success with a, a well a second completed work, I think is is quite the thing. So well done. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, it's one of those things when you read about you know people having novels tucked away in the drawer. I think it is very much a process, and I do believe, to be honest, even three or four books in, you're still working on the craft. So I think very much for you, kind of saying it's sort of breaking you a little bit. That's totally normal. <laughs> that's the main reason I'm doing this show. It's basically one big self help group where I just get people to tell me it'll all be okay. <laughs> Fragile ego of the artist. Exactly. Um. So, so let's talk about this book then, the sanatorium. You've given a kind of brief allusion there to where the idea came from. And I want to know more about that specifically. You lived in Switzerland in your 20s. Yeah. So did I for one year. Oh, interesting. Where were you? I lived in Geneva for, and for long drawn out reasons. I ended up being being a male nanny for a year. Oh, wow. Which, considering I had to do a podcast about horror, raises some questions. <laughs> um I've got to be honest, when I, so when I got this book, I had an immediate affinity because I was like, oh, great, I can't wait to read a book set in the Swiss Alps. But, I can't think of a country less obviously disposed to tales of horror or darkness. That you know, the origins of Frankenstein notwithstanding, how on earth did your time in Switzerland inspire such a gruesome, violent murder mystery? <laughs> I, I actually, we actually lived in Geneva as well for a little while. I wouldn't say it was so much the city environment. It was for me very much spending time time in the mountains. We didn't just kind of go to Swiss resorts. We used to travel across the border to some French resorts as well, uh, Chamonix being one of them. And I think when you see the mountains in kind of very stormy, snowy weather, when you've got the blue skies, great. I think it can seem almost paradise. But I think when it's when it's dark and stormy, it really sort of triggered my imagination. And for me, that idea of being isolated and you know unable to sort of fend for yourself, I very much get that feeling in the mountains. I think there's something quite dark 
and unsettling about the landscape as a whole. It's absolutely beautiful, but I think there's something really brutal about that mountain environment, just really how quickly it can change. It reminds me, I'm based by the sea and I get the same feeling with the sea. Some days it's kind of very beautiful and calm, but that can change really quickly. And I very much get that sense in the mountains of, of nature uh, the power of nature and you just feel very very small when you're there on the mountain and a sort of snowstorm sets in so I think for me that sort of dark side of thing very much comes from that sort of alpine landscape as opposed to the city. I can see that I mean there's no world less scary than Geneva it is a strangely transient soulless environment. It's an interesting environment isn't it it's um kind of the expat community is huge which like you say just gives it that transient feel doesn't it. The old town is beautiful isn't it but yeah I think you're right in that. <laughs> yeah, because of the UN, 40% of the local population are there on, on six-month contracts. So it does lend itself to this slightly fractured community. But the mountains, you say, are a different place altogether. You've got the Swiss Alps that have got the French part and the, the German part. And I think the difference between those cultures is quite profound. Uh, there's, there's, there's a place called Lauterbrunnen, which I went to, which, which oh. I think is the most beautiful place on earth. It, it, oh. It's like... It's like the bit in Lord of the Rings when they arrive at Rivendell for the first time. Oh yes, yeah. It look it looks like that. But anyway, we, we are we are diverging with the topic massively. Let's get back to why Switzerland is scary. You talked about the mountains and the the way they're changeable and dangerous and, and you feel like it's almost like this is not for you to play in. Yeah. And I find it interesting that, that this novel has been described as gothic because you know, the gothic has strong resonances with the Swiss Alps and that part of the world, the sense of the sublime and, and nature being so majestic that it almost becomes terrifying. Yeah, um, yeah. How did that backdrop, the, the the natural backdrop before we get to the hotel, how did that play into your your novel? Yeah, I think one of the things I'm really interested in, and it's not something you kind of think about really until you sort of complete the first draft and look back and think, oh, there's something really kind of a theme coming through here. I think that sense of isolation you get in the mountains, even though, as you say, you're kind of you can be surrounded by people, you can be even in beautiful weather. I think that sense of kind of feeling quite small, even if you are with people, and that sense of isolation is a theme that kept cropping up. So not only with Ellen, my main character, but I think that sense of isolation just that you get from the landscape. Almost, I suppose it is a fear of kind of being isolated and left alone. And I think that kind of towering sense of the mountains really kind of makes you feel quite small, which for me translates into yeah, a feeling of, of isolation, I suppose. There's claustrophobia. It's a kind of weird dichotomy in a way. It's kind of that isolation, but at the same time, a, a weird claustrophobia you almost feel there. You talk about claustrophobia. I mean, one of the most unnerving weekends of my life was spent in a part of the Swiss Alps called Candersteg which is not far from Crans Montana. It's what I thought of on every page of this novel because I stayed at a hotel where for, for two days I didn't see another human being. It was all automated. Oh. You didn't see anybody. Oh it was just God. me and my friend. And Candersteg is a valley where there were these towering cliffs on either side of a road and it feels like they were only sort of 10 metres apart and you were in this, oh. this defile in the landscape. Clearly that's my mind playing tricks. It can't have been like that. But yeah, that feeling of oppression within wide open space is something that's incredibly particular to mountain backdrops. And I think this novel captures the the paradox of that. They are trapped in space. Yeah, yeah. But in the middle of all that, we have this incredible hotel that once was a sanatorium. I've been reading lots of reviews of this book. 
and good or bad, and the vast majority are good, they all, without exception, mention the setting as a really striking aspect of the story. Talk to me about the hotel. How much is based in reality? Where did it come from? How did we end up with this this incredible setting? My It very much came from my imagination. But again, when you kind of chew it over after you've written that first draft, I think there are lots of sort of inspiration for it. And I, th- I think one of the first things, when I read the initial article, there was a picture of uh, one of the old sort of sanatoria. And actually in Crans Montana uh, at the time, there really wasn't much of an in- infrastructure. So really, the only reason people were coming in numbers to the town, it was very much a village, was for these sanatoria that were built kind of by a, a local doctor. He actually took over, I think there was one small hotel, and then more were built. Um, but these buildings weren't actually super remote and in the high mountain, like I've described in the book, but I have read about ones that were they were isolated in a sense, but when if you were to visit now, you wouldn't necessarily think they were tucked away. So that aspect of it, I wanted to play with and make even more remote. But the sort of physical idea of the repurposed building, I find that idea fascinating. And there's actually a, um, a what is an old cable car station in Crans Montana, which has been turned into a very kind of minimalist luxury hotel called Hotel Tretzeron. It's not isolated because it's on the piece, but it is very high up. Um, and that repurposed building that very much played into my sort of idea about the minimal design of the building um but yeah I really wanted to play with that idea that how would you feel as a guest and then obviously as a reader if you were to stay somewhere that had once been somewhere with quite a troubling past and also just on a very basic level it had a medical past I think that very much plays into some of my own fears again for me that was a really sort of powerful idea and one I kind of I think took to the next level as I started including some of the sort of very clinical aspects of the sanatorium in the design for the new hotel. Yeah I I really like the way that there is a conceit within the fictional design of this building that they have kept some of the the tokens and the motifs from from its past and they've done it in a way that is quite it's quite crass actually they're making it front and centre and but that then allows you to also put those details in. Oh, absolutely. I think I wanted, I think there's a, a scene between Lucas and Cecile where they talk about that. And I think for him, I, yeah, it was it was a good way for me because I think he was using that very much as kind of almost playing on people's macabre fascination with these things. And it's interesting because I've been reading, I've read a few sort of newspaper articles recently where they've showed quite kind of graphic images in a way of, of bodies uncovered in various things. There was one in Pompeii. Um, and then it, actually an interesting thing about bodies discovered on the glacier. I don't know if you've seen that kind of, the gla- as the glaciers are retreating they're showing sort of bodies and aspects of it and I think people you think oh it's obviously news but do you need to see the image but I think people are fascinated and Lucas as a character kind of plays with that but as you say it very much gives me um, the ability to sort of in a way shoehorn some of the interesting research about um, the treatment of tuberculosis and some of the sort of horrifying methods that we used um, some of the things I found online were were yeah quite unbelievable <laughs> Well, well, it's just dawned on me that we're throwing around the word sanatorium, but I, I have lots of young listeners from consulting the Spotify demographics, I seem to have anyway. Um, and there may be people out there who don't actually know what a sanatorium is and was for. Can you elaborate on that just a little bit? 
Yeah, so sanatoriums were established really to treat tuberculosis, which is something now that's treated by antibiotics. So it isn't really something that you would kind of see coming up today. But um, yeah, before the advent of antibiotics, sanatoriums were established. Um, generally, I think there were actually a few locally to me. So they were established in areas where um, there was clean air for one. It was primarily um, an illness where you had problems with, with breathing. So they believed that if you were at a high altitude, that would help so it would kind of help train the lungs in a way, because obviously you're, you, you're not struggling to breathe at altitude, but your body's forced to work harder. They also believed the clean air would really help. And obviously you have very pure air at altitude and in coastal areas. And then they also like to establish them in areas where there was a lot of sunlight, um, because they believed that the sunlight was healing. So UV rays being directly on the skin. And there's actually a fascinating uh, image of one of the sanatoria that's in Crans Montana. And they have children kind of queuing up outside basically in their underwear uh, because they were encouraged even in cold weather in the snowy weather to kind of get out there and feel the sun on their skin so these buildings um, were built or sometimes they were again sort of repurposed from hotels or other clinics to obviously keep infected patients away as it was infectious um, from the rest of the population so again that kind of isolation um, aspect of it was something that very much tied then into my novel and as you say, that medical past has a particular resonance today by the sound of things for you on a personal level, but also for all of us living through what we're living through. The idea yeah. of a, a medical facility designed to treat, you know, respiratory illness has a certain friss on that that does up the chill factor a little bit. Um, yeah, very much so. But yeah, no, I just, I just thought it was a phenomenal setting. I could imagine seeing the, the article you saw. I didn't know if you'd seen an actual real building and the story just kind of writing itself. But I wonder what came first, the idea for the novel or the idea of I've got to set a story in this location? Reading the article, my imagination was just really sort of sparked by the actual setting itself in the building. And I, I'd read... Uh, an amazing book. I don't know if you've read any Sarah Waters, the the Little Stranger. Just to, just to jump in, I did um, a, a top ten horror novel list before Christmas, and that came in I think at fourth. I absolutely adore that novel. So we have quite a long school run, <laughs> probably not suitable for the children, but we all listened to the Little Stranger. And I just fell in love with how she uses Hundreds Hall in that book. It's just so 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 evocative, and I think the building almost becomes a character in itself. And I think when I read that initial article, I just thought I could really do something with that building, and I, that's something I really strive to do within the book: is make the reader feel like the building itself has a presence, something quite malevolent. The idea, the sort of plotting stemmed from wanting to have something within that building. And then when I did the research around the sort of treatments that we use, plotting very much came from there. Um, and then the idea of my detective. So, yeah, it was very much the building itself where the, the book started. That makes sense. But I've got to ask something, right? You've written a novel set in a hotel that is cut off due to inclement weather. Yeah. In which terrible things go on. So tell me. How much was The Shining in the background of this when you were writing? Well, I have to say, I haven't actually read The Shining. <laughs> so it's amazing. It's fascinating for me. I've seen so many people compare it to The Shining. Um, and it's something I think in my the US publication of the book, I think there's a bit of a nod to that in very much in the cover design. I don't know if you've seen. I have, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, people have seen that aspect. But no, it wasn't influenced in any way, actually, by The Shining, <laughs> strangely enough. <laughs> I mean, for a start, 
you, you get an F on your report card for not having read The Shining. Go and read that immediately. <laughs> yeah, I will. <laughs> but that's interesting because your book has been described now, and I'm always a little bit resistant to these reductive comparisons, but it's oh, been described as Stephen King meets Agatha Christie. And I wonder, is that a comparison that you get behind? Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I think as a reader, you you read into a book based on your own references, don't you, to, to things that you have read. So for me to be described, I mean, two great authors, that's amazing. But I can definitely see why... Uh, as we were saying about the kind of genre mix, why people are comparing it to Agatha Christie in terms of sort of the locked room murder mystery aspect of it, but perhaps Stephen King in sort of more of the horror side. So absolutely, I can get behind that description. But I know other people, you know, don't necessarily have the reference points. Perhaps if they've read neither, they'll they'll look at it in a, dif- in a different way. So no, I don't really mind being compared to, to that at all. I take it. <laughs> Excellent. I always find it, like I say, a, a bit trite when people do that, though. Like, I interviewed Stuart Turton, back in the early days of this podcast. And obviously Stuart Turton, like yourself, smashes genres together. And the the mental gymnastics that marketing teams go to, to kind Mm. of give people an easy idea of what a novel is. Um, And I feel like this book, in some ways, is is a victim, not to criticise your marketing team, but, you know, it's a victim of people wanting to say, oh, this is what it is. When in fact, probably the best thing about it is it doesn't sit easily in any of these clear categorizations oh that's so interesting you've picked up on that because that's something I've discussed widely with a lot of people like I have every sort of sympathy with the marketing team because as you say they need to find almost a box in a way don't they to put the book in but I very much when I was writing it I think as as an author you are writing something that again comes from your own reference points but something that you're passionate about and I think I'm sort of passionate about the book and the character and I didn't write it with a particular kind of box in mind, as it were. I agree with you. I think there is a need to do that. But I don't think it's always helpful because I think as then as a reader, perhaps if you have certain expectations in mind, the book doesn't necessarily meet them. Um, and the book and I know some of the feedback has been about the scary aspects, for example, that they weren't expecting that or, you know, a little bit too hard hitting or or triggering. But yeah, I, I, I have empathy with the marketing team in the sense that uh, they have to do that in a way to s- sort of sell the book, don't they? Oh, yeah. I mean, we live in a hashtag culture. I just think it's a yeah. shame because, like I said, as I'm repeating myself, but in, in this book in particular, its strength is that it sits in these uneasy spaces between genres. Yeah. And I think because Ellen is a detective, um, some people come to that with kind of looking at more of a detailed police procedural side of things. And that isn't something I wanted to do. I think the sort of power in a way of her being in that isolated setting, she isn't necessarily having to go through the the detailed process that you would um, in a normal police procedural. And if you were obviously able to access other team members, etc. Um, but yeah, that that's something I, I, I like being free of in a way you know, a lot on writing courses. And I think a lot of the things you read is very much read widely within your genre. um, And obviously, almost in a way stick to that genre. So I think as a debut, it can be quite hard to sort of break free of almost your own mental constraints, because you've read books, other thrillers, psychological thrillers, police procedurals, and I think you kind of feel that you need to fulfil what's demanded in that genre. But I'm a firm believer of no, you're you're writing fiction, break free. Yeah, to to give someone who's listening to this and thinking, okay, then, well, what is it? To give someone a comparison, I think much more than comparing it to Agatha Christie or 
or Stephen King. I would compare it to somebody like Tana French. Oh, okay. That's interesting, yeah. Who, for me, writes these murder mysteries or, or crime thrillers. But the thing that distinguishes them is the kind of psychological baggage and the interior lives of the protagonists. Uh -huh. And it's, it's about that more than the procedural stuff. And I feel like you do that too. I think you get really deeply into who these people are and what's going on in their heads, much more than most mystery writers. Oh, thank you. That is something I really, really was keen to do. And I think that's something, again, that is not expressed with my frustration, perhaps, at reading kind of other sort of detective novels at all. Because I think when you are dealing with particularly a big plot, you want something to be sort of almost hyper-realistic. I think, you know, there are constraints to that. But I think because, I, as I said, I did have that isolated setting, I very much wanted to sort of use the character's sort of internal landscape and play that against the external eye. And for me, it's how someone is feeling and thinking and almost their expectations. I wanted it to feel real in a way, how a real person would feel. And I, a few people have said to me that as a character, Ellen feels quite real because she is able to express herself in a way. And I think that's more how people are in real life. I don't think as a police officer, you are necessarily have to be a hard boiled kind of person who is cutting yourself off emotionally. There are people that are able to do their job but internally, there's an in, yeah an internal voice kind of expressing doubts about their abilities, who has kind of fears and anxieties. And that's something I really wanted to kind of smash through that barrier um, and show Ellen as almost real and very, very flawed, but not in the usual ways, <laughs> the kind of tropes of addiction or alcoholism or anything like that. Well, that's it. I think, obviously, there's some great stuff out there that applies those tropes. But I don't think anybody right now can convince me that what we need is another detective who is in the throes of addiction or unable to speak to other human beings or, or even worse that kind of thing where it's like oh let's take the autistic spectrum and make it into a superpower I, I, I don't think we need any of that and, and as you say Ellen is deeply broken in some ways but there's no yeah. there's none there's none of that cliched extremity to her so there are some parts where you think oh she's quite estranged from her family or she's has quite a challenging relationship with her partner but then it's not it's not black and white. There are then times where she has a drink and opens up to a partner and then clamps up again yeah. and then opens up again. And it is it is much more like a real person who doesn't really know how they feel all the time. Yeah, that is that <laughs> that's that's a really good point you've made because I think as a person, you aren't one way all of the time. And I don't think your behaviour is always the same is 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 always acting exactly the same way. And I think it's not just reading, I think, in films. You will see characters who, it's almost like they have those character traits glued to them and then they stick through that throughout the book. I think people are, are really a lot more complex than that. And I think, you know, they can be annoying, they can be frustrating. And I wanted Ellen to have all of those. I didn't want her just to be a kind of heroine character. I wanted her to frustrate the reader as much as someone might well do in real life. I wondered about her name because it's Ellen, spelled E-L-I-N, and the surname is Warner, which has kind of Germanic overtones. And I wonder whether whether you were making some point about her almost being between two cultures. I wonder if there was something going on there that was an extra level of unease. To be honest, it was just a name. I probably, again, just uh, subconscious references. I wanted a, a, a quite a short name. And it's something I think when you're writing, I don't know about you when you're writing your book, I think the character names are actually really important. And when, once you found a kind of a name that, that fits, it wasn't particularly a, 
a cultural reference, though I think some of the names within the books, I did want it to be applicable if you were kind of reading from anywhere. It wasn't all kind of typically British names because you're not in the UK. Um, but yeah, it was more, it was very much more kind of a, a name that I felt suited her. And I think Ellen, that kind of short name, very much fits her as a character. Okay. I've just interviewed CJ Tudor a few weeks back about her new novel, The Burning Girls. And as I was reading this, I kept picturing CJ Tudor as Ellen. It's the short, cool hair. <laughs> it's interesting, the parallel. I have a, um, uh, I very, I'm quite a visual person when I'm sort of planning things. And I, I had a sort of scrapbook and a, a pin board. And yeah, the, the, the kind of short hair, I wanted her to be quite paired back. So yeah, I can kind of see, I very much with CJ Tudor. <laughs> if you don't, if people don't know, go and look up a picture of CJ Tudor, you'll see what I mean. Um, Ellen has a lot of trauma in her past. As we've said, it, it doesn't manifest in that typical way where I've had a bad thing, so I'm going to turn to drink and become an awful person. But it is a major secondary strand in this novel. Yeah. So there's something happened when she was young in her family that's left her with some real unresolved stuff. And it becomes a parallel mystery. And I wondered all the way through, didn't you have enough to deal with? like as a debut novelist, why include this whole other strand? Yeah, I think it comes back to what you were saying before. It's just really what, what I like to read. I think I like to feel like I'm going on a bit of a journey with a character. And I think to have that sort of almost secondary plot strand woven into the book, um, it very much influences how Ellen not only deals with kind of the people around her, but the plot itself and how she actually works as a de- detective. And I think to have that powerful reason by... Um, of, of who she is and, and why she behaves in the way she has is something that's quite integral to me. So I wanted to build that in and it would kind of almost mirror what we were doing in the plot. So that kind of moment where she finally reveals um, her feelings to Will, the moment where you find out where that sort of secondary plot comes together, very much works alongside what's going on in the main plot. And for me, yeah, as I say, it was just very integral that you're getting to know Ellen as much as you're kind of almost sort of seeking out the clues in the plot itself. And it does, as you say, it ties together both Ellen's personal history yeah. and the mystery of what's gone in the hotel. That there, there are points of connection and convergence between those two things because there are people from Ellen's past in the hotel. We, we, this is yeah. this is the issue now. We're talking about about a mystery novel. You have to really be careful what you say. <laughs> and and yeah, and what I feel think happens is you end up in with a novel in which. All the characters, including at times Ellen herself, seem quite shady. Now, in all good mysteries, you know, you can't, you're wrong-footed as to like who has done what. But, but in the sanatorium, I would go as far as to say we're continually unsure as to who anyone really is. Yeah. In terms of the inner life, you keep it really opaque who anyone is, what they feel about anybody else, and you know, why they are doing the things they're doing. How did you keep all those balls in the air? Oh, (laughs) that's a very kind of hard process, I would say. And I describe it very much as a a sort of working process, because I think when you're plotting and going along, you have to be kind of hyper aware that you're not giving away too much, because I think the tendency when you do know a character well, and I did get to know all of the characters well, the tendency is to give that little bit of extra information just because you want the kind of reader to know that character. But yeah, I very much kept it paired back. And again, I think it sort of stems from, I do really have a sense in life that there is a kind of very much an underworld with people. And I do think 
you obviously could know someone and love someone absolutely but I do believe there's a lot going on that you perhaps will never know and I also kind of wanted to play that unreliable memory and again I won't say too much from a spoiler point of view but I think there are things we convince ourselves um, and I think it's very clever of the brain a kind of self-protective mechanism so I think people can very much believe in what they're saying to somebody else but deep down it's not actually the truth and I think I wanted that uneasy sense of never really knowing anyone and even someone not knowing themselves to come across in the book but yeah it's a hard process to do that but in a mystery novel I think there are clues you want to give and red herrings I think keeping that internal landscape quite closed it makes it a little bit easier in terms of um, a plotting point of view. Right that interesting I thought it would have made it harder because to me you're keeping you're wrong-footing us in two directions you're wrong-footing us both yeah. in terms of literal events what is happening you know the ABCs of the mystery and you're also wrong-footing us in terms of everyone's perspective on everything. I imagined you sitting there with like a big like you know in a serial killer film when the detective has like cards on his wall and just pieces of string like one of those dens with a wall given over to this obsessive idea Um, but it sounds like you just did it. (laughs) I know I'm amazed by these people that have lots of their index cards and they have these beautiful I've seen lots of pictures on Instagram of post-it notes mine kind of stays within my head and then I do sort of note things down but I keep a lot of the plotting in my head and then as you go through it is an elimination process of what should and I shouldn't say here and it's actually quite fun I very much enjoy the sort of academic challenge in that of making sure you're not giving away too much but I think that sort of having people as quite opaque it's interesting you say it makes it harder I think for me it makes it easier simply because I think you're at less danger of the characters revealing things I think if you have a character that is very open there obviously could be a sense that they're unreliable but I think there is more of a chance that the reader will guess or get to know that character in a way that you don't if you're kind of keeping things a little bit unsteady. Yeah, that makes sense. So we, we've, we've strayed to the very edge of spoiler. So this question may overstep. And if it does, you can have the final say and we can cut it. So don't worry about that. But when we get the final reveal, I'm going to pick my words really carefully here, we find out that what has been going on... Yeah hasn't necessarily been done out of complete and utter evil, shall we say. I'm edging my bets here. (laughs) Was it important to you to have that moral complexity thrown into the mix? Yeah, it was. And I think it's tricky depending on what kind of book you're writing. I think there are elements where you can have the character who is, is almost acting on impulse without a sort of reason behind it and that's that's absolutely fine but I think with with how I wanted the book to work and some of the themes it covered I wanted there to be again that kind of ambiguity that you get all the way through I think there's some motive and it obviously doesn't justify what happened but I think that kind of idea of someone sort of being constantly silenced and that frustration I wanted that to come up as a motive and I know most of us wouldn't do what without giving away anything what happens in the novel because of that but I think there can be that immense frustration sometimes that people aren't always listening um, or people want to turn the other cheek and that's something I really wanted to explore because I think how people respond to Ellen in the novel uh, the people around her obviously personally and also professionally Lucas the hotel owner etc I think there's a sense of not really listening and not really wanting to hear what she has to say and that has echoes with the actual plot itself so yeah I very much wanted for that to be sort of echoed within that question of, of why 
for listeners, I've had to do a cut there because Sarah just gave away who the, the perpetrator was, shall we say. So you're now hearing a very edited version of her final answer to, to save the mystery. But otherwise, I think we got away with that. Let's talk finally about the gothic and the horror element because the mystery element is clear. You know, you take Christie's isolated location and the fixed cast of characters and you spin it. But almost every view that you've got on your website from blurbs and things from other authors uses the word creepy. Where do you see the heart of the creepiness in your story? For me, I think the creepiness comes with the sort of setting and the building and that sense of isolation. And I think it comes, for, for me personally, I, I find that suggestion aspect. I think there are some overt aspects that could be described as, as scary. But I think that creepiness, I think creepy is a good word because it's that sense of uneasiness you get when you're not quite sure what's going on. That sense of something bubbling under the surface. And I think you get that from the characters, but also from the sort of building it, itself. What about these awful masks, though, that both the murderers and the victims wear? That, that is a great detail. Are they real? Did they, like, leap out of your research at you saying, use me? <laughs> yeah, it's something that came a little bit later than the time period I was researching. But I found a great video on a Swiss website which showed someone actually using one of these devices. So, yeah, from nose to mouth, this tube. And the minute I kind of saw it... Um, it's interesting we're talking about this kind of pandemic now. I, I, I personally have quite a fear of having my sort of mouth covered or anything around my nose. So the mask wearing has been quite interesting for me. So it taps into quite a primal fear, that kind of claustrophobic sense. Um, and I think that's mentioned with Ellen in the novel as well, a kind of fear of masks of any kind. So it's been quite interesting for me <laughs> during the pandemic. Yeah, but the masks I, I saw in the research, I very much immediately thought that could be something really, really interesting to play with there. It made me weirdly think of like plague doctor type mask, that same kind of disfiguring animalistic thing. But tell me the truth. Was there any part of you when you were writing about the masks thinking this will look amazing in the movie? <laughs> uh, not really. It was very much just stemmed, I think, from my fear. And I think what you picked up there, the disfiguring aspect, I, I write visually. So it's interesting you kind of connect to the movie, how I write is very much from seeing playing out its cinema style very visually. And I think I like to have very striking visual images because as an author, that makes it really easy for me to sort of live in that scene and describe it moment by moment. And to put yourself in that character's shoes when they're seeing something kind of so visually horrific is, is really effective. So yeah, there is an aspect of sort of cinematic there, but not, not particularly from seeing it as a film. <laughs> okay, but... If it ever does get adapted, that, that has the potential to kind of enter the zeitgeist in the way that something like the Scream <laughs> mask did. Because it's such a yeah. horrifying idea, this. Anyway, I'll let people find out. With yeah, no, I, I have to say, I've actually had, even after writing, a few nightmares myself. And I know I've given a few people some, so, yeah. To finish off, there's a really intriguing epilogue to the novel. And it kind of comes out of left field and opens up this world or at least Ellen's world so you mentioned right at the start of this you're working on the second novel I was to take it that you are planning another return to Ellen's story that's right I've actually just finished the first draft of book two um but Ellen this time returns to actually where I'm from and that's sort of hinted at at the beginning of the sanatorium that she's from Devon so she resumes her role 
as a police officer and she is back in the UK. But yeah, it's another dark, disturbing narrative, really, uh, playing again into Ellen's sort of darkest fears and very much her sort of feelings about her past and that sort of um, sense of not being quite sure who she is as a person and, and trusting her memory. That's something I keep coming back to and have in lots of short stories. And it's something that fascinates me. And as we've discussed, was a bit of the main driver for the sanatorium, the idea that you perhaps can't quite trust what you yourself believe to be true. Um, and I return to that in book two. Excellent. Have you got a working title for that? Uh, not as yet. That's still in discussion. <laughs> okay. And do you have a rough timetable for publication? Yeah, it will probably be around the same time next year, though that hasn't been confirmed yet. So, yeah, February 2022. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure that, you know, anyone who reads this will rush to pick up that to see how the story continues. Before you go, would you be willing to answer my four questions that I throw at each, at each guest? Absolutely. This is my collage of the, the minds of, of horror writers and thriller writers out yeah. there to see what, see what connects us all. So question one, and just give me the first thing that comes to mind on this, if that's the point of it. What was yeah. your gateway to horror or dark fiction? That's a, that's a really good question, actually. I think probably a gateway, uh, as, as a teenager, I probably read quite scary books. I wouldn't say necessarily they were classified as horror, but there was a lot of kind of point horror books when I was younger. I was very heavily into series and there were a lot of sort of quite dark stories. They were only short novels, but for me, I've always been attracted to the dark side of things, not necessarily specifically horror, but anything with that slightly dark aspect where you're having to check over your shoulder, nothing too graphic, but that kind of suggestion of something scary. So I'd probably say it was those books as a relatively young teenager, probably only sort of 13 or 14. <laughs> You're the first person to mention point horror. I ask everyone that question and you're the first person to mention it. I can't believe it's such a formative reading experience. I had a letter sent home from my teacher at primary school to complain to my dad that I was reading point horror books and it, it all kicked off. Uh, my dad was on my side. It was fine. Yeah, there was. Um, I think there was a lot of kind of question marks, wasn't there? Because interestingly, I found um, quite a few in a charity shop. My daughter's a voracious reader, <laughs> so gets through kind of series. She's Harry Pottering at the moment, but gets through books really quickly. Um, and yeah, there was a point horror. She's not quite onto them yet. She's ten, but yeah, looking through them, are actually very dark. <laughs> People who think R.L. Stein just wrote like the cute and cuddly goosebumps have no idea. He wrote some horrendous things before that. I remember he wrote one called The Babysitter, which at the time when I read it, I'd have been about 10, I thought was the best thing I'd ever read. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, question, the, question the second. Um, if you could recommend one book to our listeners, what would it be and why? Yeah, I, th this book is a book that I would recommend simply because it lingers in my mind. And even now, I think probably, I don't know, maybe two or three three years on from when I've read it, I still think about the book. Um, and it very much influenced, I suppose, that sort of dark and sinister setting um, in the mountains of the sanatorium. Um, and it's Thin Air by Michelle Paver. I don't know if you've read it, but it's um, a gripping book. Um, it's a ghost story, but it's it has been described as kind of having elements of horror within it. But I think it's more linking back what, to what we were saying before of the suggestion of horror. It follows um, an expedition of a mountain that's meant to be basically more deadly than Everest in the Himalayas. And it's very, very creepy. You kind of have a doomed expedition that they're sort of following behind and you're getting very much sort of hints of ghostly presence. And again, the mountains themselves become a real sort of character within the novel. And the, the narrator really is sort of struggling with being in that isolated mountain environment. But she, Michelle Paver describes the setting so beautifully 
that really conjures up that sense of sort of menace that you your imagination then plays tricks with, which I think is the most effective sort of um, ghostly horror thing you can do is really let the mind take on its own fears. I I haven't read that one. She wrote another one called I think it was called A Dark Matter. Yes, which yeah, I haven't read that was one. Set in the Arctic. I said they're quite they're kind of like companion pieces. So one is about God of a Mountain on as a ghost, and the other one is somebody who is stuck in the Arctic over winter in a haunted hut. And they're both they're, they're linked in my mind because they're kind of like adversity plus ghosts. But I haven't read uh, Thin Air, and I'll definitely look it up. But thank you for that. My third question is, and this is really, really pertinent from you today on the day of publication, debut novel, what piece of advice would you give to a wannabe author? Oh, that's a really good question. I think I think the biggest thing for me would be to really think about if you if you're trying to write, it depends if you're trying what kind of book you're trying to write, but I think the the advice applies to anything. For me, when I'm writing a scene. I think if you're able to place yourself in that environment effectively, you're then able to describe not only the characters' reactions to it kind of very well, but as an author, you're able to put in detail that you might not be able to. I think if it's somewhere that you can't see yourself living inside your head for a long period, it might not be the best kind of setting or locale for the book. I think you really have to live and breathe that environment. So I think if you're able to do that, that's a really great starting point for any writer. Brilliant. Brilliant. That's a, a new one. It's nice. I like to get a bit of different advice. And my last question that I ask everyone, what truly scares you? Mm, there's quite a few things, actually, <laughs> in common with my main character. I think probably my biggest fear is around claustrophobia. And it's not necessarily a sort of fear of being in small spaces per se, but kind of linked to what we were saying before about isolated settings where there's perhaps no chance of escape so it doesn't necessarily have to be a sense of uh physical claustrophobia but almost mental claustrophobia i i don't know if you (laughs) similar thing where you have almost that sleep paralysis where you're feeling like you're a little bit trapped inside your own body i think that sense is a big fear for me and it's something i played a little bit with but can't give too much away in the novel that is interesting. I, I had that once, once and once only, sleep paralysis. And I, that's what my novel is about. So, um, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm confronting that particular fear. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, yeah, they're all great answers. So thank you very much. I mean, where can our listeners find you online? I'm on all of the sort of usual social channels. So I'm on Instagram at Sarah Pierce Author and I'm on Twitter at Sarah V. V. Pierce, and then on Facebook, if you just again, I think it's Sarah Pierce author, uh, you'll find me. Isn't it annoying when you can't get the same name on each one? <laughs> I know. On Twitter, I was taken. I was like, ah. <laughs> I know I've got that with this show. Someone has got talkscared.com and they don't use it. It's just sitting there empty. Yeah, it's driving me mad. So, once again, happy publication day in the USA. Everyone over there, go and buy this book. And in the UK, from the 4th or from the 18th if you want a paper hardback copy. But I'm sure it'll go down well with anyone who loves thrillers that edge towards the darker side or anyone who loves a good mystery or anyone who loves a nice bit of escapism where they can get away from lockdown to a nice hotel in the Swiss Alps. Yeah, I wish you all the best with it. And Sarah Pierce, thanks for talking scared. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for having me.
I think you could hear Sarah's excitement in that conversation. I mean, we arranged the interview date months ago, and in between arranging it and doing it, the publication details and, and release dates changed all over the place. And Sarah actually fulfilled her promise to me and spent an hour talking to me on the day of publication in the US. Which, yeah, I mean, is very kind of her, considering what was going on. She couldn't say at the time, but less than an hour after our conversation, the sanatorium was picked as part of Reese Witherspoon's book club, which I believe is a huge deal in American book circles. So, congrats to Sarah. And it's good to see any book from the dark side get its moment in the limelight. The sanatorium intrigued me and very much kept me guessing. All the way through, I thought I knew what was going on and I was just continually wrong. What it also did, though, and this surprised me a lot, considering the nature of the holiday in the, in the book, it really made me realise how much I want to stay in a hotel. Normally, I'm quite a homebody, but the thought of checking in, eating out, and just sleeping inside a different four walls. Well, you know, as horrible as to stay in Sarah's hotel was, I can't wait to pack my own bags. It also made me hugely nostalgic for Switzerland. And I've got to clarify a few things here. As you may have heard me say in passing, yep, I used to work as a nanny in Switzerland. Well, actually in France, but I'd cycle over the border every day. I looked after a little two-year-old boy called Noah, who spoke better English at two years old than I did German, and who taught me that the secret to looking after children is frequent singing, sofa thoughts, and letting them pick which book to read, a lesson which I hope is influencing this podcast. The rest was just catching him when he tried to kill himself on a daily basis from the climbing frame, but it it was the best job ever. My commute took me exactly along the route of the CERN-Hadron Collider, and I was living there when they turned it on. So if you remember all the worry about how it may create a black hole and destroy the world, well, if that had happened, it would have begun in my kitchen. I absolutely loved living in Switzerland. It's a truly phenomenal place. You know, every weekend you catch a train and go hiking or snowboarding, and it costs nothing when you live there. I read books by the side of Lake Geneva. It was just wonderful, and Sarah's book has made me miss it badly. So, if you're craving a holiday right now, and let's face it, who isn't, then that could be perhaps the best reason to pick this book up. Speaking of the word sanatorium and its meaning... Apologies if I'm being patronising every time I say, I have young listeners who may not know this stuff. I've heard myself say it a few times now. I'm sure all of my younger listeners are knowledgeable and fully informed and probably know a damn sight more than I do about most things. I just do it to make sure that everyone listening has all the facts they need to get the most out of these conversations. So it's not me being patronising, it's just me covering my bases for all the listeners. So yeah, please don't hold that against me. I've got to say, it's been an exciting week here at Talking Scared Towers. I've managed to sign off on bookings with some really big-name authors coming up throughout the spring, summer and into the autumn. To give you a tantalising glimpse of some of the people I'm going to be talking to, I've got Josh Malaman, who's coming on the show to talk about the reissue of Goblin, and we'll probably discuss some Bird Box stuff. I've got Grady Hendrix, who has kindly agreed to come on to talk about his new, typically innovative meta-thriller, The Final Girl Support Group. I've got Chuck Wendig, who's going to come on to talk about The Book of Accidents. That may be my most exciting read for 2021. Richard Chismar is going to come on to talk to me about Chasing the Bogeyman. And if you haven't heard about that book, 
look up the synopsis. It sounds meta as hell and really, really quirky and fascinating. Zakaya Delilah Harris is booked in to come and speak to me about The Other Black Girl, which has been touted as The Devil Meets Prada versus Get Out. Make of that what you will, but it sounds very much like the book we need right now to address the prejudice, glass ceiling, intersectionality and microaggressions that have plagued the media and politics in recent years. I'm excited for that one. Who else? Who else? Ramsey Campbell has agreed to come on and talk about his epic career in horror. I mean, I don't know where to start with that one. <laughs> that is a daunting prospect. I'm in talks with Tanara Reeve Do. Again, very exciting. Serious legacy in horror. A lot of reading for me. Ramsey and Tanara Reeve are the authors that are probably my biggest gaps in my horror reading. So, yep, better get the homework done. Joel Lansdale is coming on to talk about his newest book, Moon Lake. And, you know, 30 years of writing stuff at the absolute cornerstone of Pulp and Grindhouse. Can't wait for that one. And then going into the autumn... I've got Stephen Graham Jones, who is back following the success of The Only Good Indians with My Heart is a Chainsaw. Yeah, that's just a few guests that I've got booked in. Things are getting bigger and better and bolder week on week. So if you've been around for a while listening to me, thanks very much. Stick around. And if you're brand new to this episode, then yeah, stick around. We've got the very best in horror conversation right here on Talking Scared. Other news, other news. Um, You may have seen that I ran a book giveaway recently on Twitter, and a lucky winner will soon receive their advance-proof copy of Stephen Graham Jones' My Heart is a Chainsaw, months and months before publication. Thanks to Saga Books for providing that proof. Um, That will not be the last giveaway I do. I have one planned for the very next few weeks, actually. So if you want to keep abreast of that kind of stuff, And if you want to join the conversation, for example, we had a great chat online just this week about which author you would binge read if you had the time. And that blew up way more than I expected. If you want to be involved in that kind of horror community chat, then follow the show on Twitter at TalkScaredPod. And if you want to get in touch directly with me, which I'm very open to, you can DM me on Twitter or email me directly at TalkingScaredPod at gmail.com. I say it every week, and I'm going to say it again, and next week. If you can, please leave me a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, and I will read out the names of each and every person who does. We've had no new reviews in the last week, and we really, really need them to help the show grow. So please, please, for the love of God, review me. And, you know, if you can, make it kind. But otherwise, that's it for this week. Until we meet again, hold firm. Keep your chin up, plan your next holiday, read good books, and remember, it's good to be scared.